You're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast on the 5x5 Network. You're listening to episode 319 and I'm your host, Brittany Martin. Sean Devine, CEO of XBE and former host of the show, is back for catch-up. Welcome back, Sean. Hey, thanks for having me. So, Sean, how are you doing? Well, I'm uh, I'm pretty good. I mean, personally, I, I've been a bit sick for a while, so um, that has not been great. But uh, I think I'm on the mend or, you know, going in the right direction, maybe. I've been sick for more than three days in my entire life prior to this, and I've been sick for maybe, oh, I don't know, 40 days in a row. So... It's been uh, it's been unexpected and kind of uh, kind of shocking, but um, you know I, I think I'm, I'm you know pointing in the right direction at least. So that's has good. it just been you or has it been the entire family? It was just me, yeah. Thankfully, so uh, I don't know if that's a. Oh, I, I live with all all women, and uh, apparently women have a much better immune system than than men do. At least if you read about or read some of the stories lately. So I uh, my my body was not tough enough, and theirs was. I actually did not know that, so I'm already learning something from you. Well, I think like something like I don't know, 75 or 80 percent of all of the, I may have that stat wrong, but it's in that neighborhood of all fatalities from COVID-19 are men. Wow. Um, and I don't think it's that. I don't think that that's true in terms of infections. I think that it's just like um, uh, men, for whatever reason, succumb to it more easily than women do. So I don't, I don't know. I don't know that that's actually true in my situation, but, uh, but anyhow, I, I, I'm, I'm going in the right direction. So I've, I've got more to be thankful for than not. I'm glad to hear that. Now remind me, did XBE, they have an office, correct? You have an office or you typically work from home? Uh, no, we have an office. So the majority of our team members are not in Chicago and work from home. So we have 13 people and they're spread around the world and only three are in the office. So you were basically an expert in having a remote company already. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're, I describe us as distributed because it's not like there's really a main office and then people that work elsewhere. It's really everyone works distributed. And it just so happens that because I, you know, uh, wanted one, I made an office in Chicago. That's kind of nice. But, um, and, and those that are also in Chicago uh, work out of it. But, but basically we're all, you know, working distributed all the time. So off the top of your head, if you could give one tip to a company who has recently become distributed, what would you say? Yeah, I think that I think that being good on Slack, so to speak, is an underrated important skill. Um, I, I think that there are a lot of people that are are pretty good at working from from an office or are good in person. That when you interact with them um, in Slack or some other sort of you know collaborative team environment. They, they just aren't themselves. They feel uh, one dimensional or only two dimensional when usually they're quite interesting. And so, in fact, I just hired someone uh, this week and and she is relatively new to working um, remote mostly. And she has a very sort of compelling personality. And my, my advice to her was um, to make sure to sort of be your entire self on Slack. So that means, you know, share things just about what's going on in your life and inquire about others and, you know, uh, uh, let people know some inform interesting information just because someday it'll be helpful. Don't be too task oriented, you know, like yada, yada. And, uh, and that sort of unexpectedly was like important for her to hear. She like just hadn't thought about it and was a little bit anxious about, um, 
being kind of the right amount of professional on Slack. And, uh, you know, what she told me was that it was helpful to hear that she should sort of be her entire self, just like she would in the office. So, you know, I, I think that that advice, uh, maybe it's sort of second nature for people that have, have grown up working that way. But for most people, they haven't worked in an environment that collaborates that way as the sort of the default mode. And uh, it doesn't necessarily come naturally if you didn't grow up doing it. So I've had an interesting phenomenon happen to me. My entire office is not in the same chat system until we all were sent home. We all joined Microsoft Teams at once. And now I'm actually interacting with departments that I would never speak to. And because I was in meetings with them so rarely, I was very formal and, you know, I'm one of the web developers and I make magic happen on the web and I'm used to saying no to things that they ask for. But now that we're all in the same chat platform, someone actually created a water cooler channel and every single day they prompt a different question and I'm actually feeling like I'm getting closer to some of the parts of my company who I had no relationship with before. Yeah. Hey, I think that Microsoft Teams or Slack or whatever, it's a pretty robust um, platform to express yourself. Um, it just it, it, it just is a different way of expressing yourself than, you know, being funny at lunch at the office or whatever. So for like, I, I work with another guy named Grant and he's a huge personality and really interesting to work with. And at first wasn't that good at kind of expressing that uniqueness on Slack. And it, it felt ridiculous at first because he's a, you know, he's a leader in the company and has a very prominent role. Um, but I sort of pulled him aside and said, hey man, you are extremely funny almost always. And like on Slack, you're not. And so, uh, you know, like just work on that as your kind of venue. And now he's extremely funny on Slack. So it was just interesting to see how that how that transitioned. That's so interesting. Well, as you know, a lot of companies are going through some hard times with the pandemic, but I've seen a lot of exciting tweets come from you about XBE. So I'd love to hear what the latest is. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, it, it feels almost crass to say that our business has not been negatively impacted too much by the pandemic, because I feel like it's just been such a nuclear bomb on the world and, you know, the economy and, and, uh, and everything, but, but at least as it goes, you know, we're probably in the, you know, 95th, 98th percentile, something, you know, very high in terms of, you know, how well our business is poised for this kind of moment. And that's because we provide software and primarily software and, and chemistry and brokerage services to the, the construction industry and specifically the, the horizontal construction industry. So that's the people that build roads and bridges and, and uh, do excavation work. So kind of the heavy construction stuff you see um, around the infrastructure of the US. And uh, so most of that work is funded by the government, um, one way or another, at least. And uh, while at some point, you know, um, having the gas tax be down and having vehicle miles traveled be down and having overall tax revenue uh, down may impact or uh, probably will impact the total spend on the nation's infrastructure. It's also true that with you know such a bad economy that some amount of stimulus money may offset that and in net you know, spending uh, on infrastructure will, will not be as impacted as it has been in so many other sectors. And since we provide the kind of infrastructure for the infrastructure industry, um, uh, we're as needed as ever, you know, or maybe even more so. Um, so it, it's it's a little discombobulating almost to to sort of run a company in such a trying time that is is uh, not as trying for the company as it is for for most. But um, you know, that's definitely the situation we're in. 
So it looks like you're hiring some new team members then. We are. Yeah, we've um, so I, I started working on the company four years ago and sort of brick by brick built it up. We didn't raise um, we didn't raise venture capital. We've you know sort of bootstrapped the business and now it's 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 pretty successful. And um, and so we've always been pretty uh, cautious about hiring. You know, we haven't gotten out ahead of ourselves have never hired in a big wave. But um, between this time last year and now, we've uh, over doubled again in, in well, we've probably tripled in customers, maybe near tripled in revenue um, and haven't grown our staff. Uh, you know, so we're three times bigger, but not actually bigger in people at all. And uh, and so I and I wanted to make sure that we're in a good spot to to add staff. And, and we certainly are. So we decided to add both um, operations coordinators and those are people that work with customers to help onboard them and make them successful over time. And then also hiring software developers, both on the, the more junior side and, and folks that have more experience, um, either full stack or, or split between uh, front and back end. How's the response been on the developer side so far? You know, really good. Um, it's such an interesting experience to, to sort of post a job and promote it. I, I generally don't, don't, um, promote things all that heavily. And, uh, it's interesting to see how, you know, years of being some, you know, semi visible in the community, um, they, they kind of all come back to you when you post a job and promote it a little bit. I've been really kind of amazed at the candidates. Um, our, our team is split between the U S and, and India mostly. And, and so we've, we've had a lot of good candidates, um, both again, more junior and senior on the U S side and, and also a lot of uh, great, great candidates, uh, in India too. And, um, it's been, it's been a lot of fun. It's a lot of work, as you know, to, to interview, you know, every single person that's sending an application, you want to do a good job of, of, you know, uh, acting like it's the first one and, you know, treating it with your full attention and giving your all to those conversations and, you know, and engaging in the technical interview process in an interesting way. And, you know, I, I'd, I'd be, uh, I'd be lying if I said that it wasn't like a little bit of a challenge to sort of just keep up that level of, of engagement with every candidate. But um, thankfully, the quality has been really good and that that makes it a little bit easier. Do you have any idea of just roughly the percentage of the sections of the pie of the people who are applying that are currently laid off from the pandemic or lost their jobs or these people who are looking to leave their previous employer? That's a really good question. I'm going to say it's maybe one third are people whose jobs were negative, like who were laid off already. One third who have not been laid off, but who are more sensitive now than they used to be to the possibility of that because either they're maybe company's not doing so well or they fear that um it's not going to do so well um and then the other third are folks that um i think in one way or another had been interested maybe in in working with with me and and when i posted that um we were hiring just reached out just because they they had sort of had their eye on that in the first place i find that so interesting what I would love to know once we're all done with the pandemic, which who knows when that will happen, but just overall in this past year of how many developers are now willing to work remotely, because I think a lot of people were afraid of it. And so I'm interested to see how many uh, how many developers out there are willing to work for a distributed company that wasn't before. Yeah, I, th I, I, uh, I also am interested in that. I think it's... Um... 
I think we're probably in for a very interesting shift in a few ways. I mean, so one, it's true that that there are people that maybe didn't consider working remotely that now are considering it, but there are also companies, well, I, this is sort of obvious, but there are companies that hadn't considered uh, having people work remotely that now have been forced into it and, um, you know, by hook, or, by hook or by crook are like, well, hey, this isn't so bad. Um, and I, I think that what we're likely to see is just when um, a certain sort of segment of the, of the developer pool opens their mind to it, um, more companies do too. And the, the competition that's ensuing, I think is interesting because, you know, the reason that I've always been pro um, distributed, pro remote is that you just get better candidates, right? And that instead of fishing in a very small pond, you say, hey, I'm, I'm open to working literally with anyone anywhere in the world if they're good. And it, um, and this is a little crass to talk about, but it is a little crazy on the hiring side to see the huge range of compensation expectations for basically the same skill set. And it's all based on where people are physically. Um, and I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I know that it's not that popular to talk about that. And I, and I don't want to spend too much time on it, but it is really wild. Like it, it's, it's, I mean, the number of times now that I've gotten off the phone um, with someone who I'm very impressed with and then get right on the phone with another person who I end up being very impressed with. And uh, there's a two X difference in compensation expectations for basically the same people. I mean, they're, they're obviously individuals and unique, but by, by experience and skills, they're not terribly different. It's, it's quite wild. And so, I mean, I know you didn't exactly ask a question about that, but I think it's related in that the being open to remote makes these high contrast comparisons like a, a real unavoidable reality and i think that there's likely to be all sorts of interesting consequences from that yeah i've had prior conversations with recruiters and as the listeners know we've had brian mariani on and i asked the question of being terrified of stating a number and offending the employer and he always said that you're not going to offend the employer by having too high of a number but you, you want to be thoughtful about it. And unfortunately, there just is not a good place to know what kind of number as a developer to pitch to a potential employer. Yeah, it's, um, I, mean, I mean, if part of what you're selling, because I'm both an employer and a developer, right? So I think I can, um, I can to some degree, put both hats on. And um, one of the things that people in very high cost of living places like like say new york city or san francisco or you know we could name others one of the things that they have to offer is that they're in that city and so when you know you're when you're recruiting for a job where their loca where location doesn't matter it literally has no positive value at all um, it's a very difficult position to be in to be in one of those cities because that's part of what you know you're offering and let's call it half of your compensation expectation is just kind of the cost of offering that thing. But if the job doesn't need that thing, then, I mean, you're fundamentally just in a massive disadvantage. Like the thing that is the advantage usually kind of flips on its head. And I don't, I don't know. It's, it's, I, I it, it feels very uncomfortable to me because um, that's not really a thing that one talks about in 
it's 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 kind of an an awkward topic to 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 talk about and to think about but um now that everyone's working remotely the thing that had been the advantage like being in San Francisco is honestly a pretty big disadvantage because the probability that like the probability that XBE could or would hire someone in San Francisco is is almost zero because there are other really good you know uh, um programmers that are great candidates also that um, you know, don't live there and aren't, aren't sort of paying for that attribute. And, and so I don't know, I, I think, I think we're going to see a lot of shifting, you know, and, and, a, and a lot of people really wondering, Hey, am I, am I getting the value career wise that I'm paying for by living in this place? And, and the answer sometimes is yes, but when it's no, it's, it's a pretty big no. I completely agree. Well, I want to get into the gap year program and the idea of a 10 X customer, but we're going to take a quick break. Okay, so we all know how ExpressVPN protects your privacy and security online, right? But here's something you might not know. You can also use ExpressVPN to unlock movies and shows that are only available in other countries. Now that so many of us are stuck at home, it's only a matter of time until you run out of stuff to watch on Netflix. So this whole week I've been using ExpressVPN to binge Fresh Prince of Bel-Air on Australian Netflix. It's so simple to do. I just fire up the ExpressVPN app, change my location in Australia, reflash Netflix, Refresh Netflix, and that's it. See, ExpressVPN hides your IP address and lets you control where you want sites to think you're located. You can choose from almost 100 different countries, so just think about all the Netflix libraries you can go through. Love anime? Use ExpressVPN to act, access Japanese Netflix and be spirited away. But it's not just Netflix. ExpressVPN works with any streaming service. Hulu, BBC, iPlayer, YouTube, you name it. There are hundreds of VPNs out there, but the reason I use ExpressVPN to watch shows is ridiculously fast. There's never any buffering or lag, and you can stream in HD no problem. ExpressVPN is also compatible with all your devices, phones, media consoles, smart TVs, and more. So you can watch what you want on a personal device or on the big screen wherever you are. If you visit my special link right now, expressvpn.com ruby, R-U-B-Y, you can get an extra free three months of ExpressVPN for free. Support the show, watch what you want, and protect yourself at expressvpn.com slash ruby. Thanks to ExpressVPN for sponsoring the show. So back to you, Sean. Tell me all about your gap year program that you just unveiled. Yeah. Uh, well, the gap year program. Don't miss the pun. Uh, oh, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you know, gap uh, year program. You know, I went to the trouble to buy gapyear.com just so I, I don't want to waste it on uh, uh, nothing. But anyways, yeah, I, it, it, well, here's how it came about. Well, well, first, here's what the program is. So there's a lot of uncertainty about um, going to college this year, both for, for people that are somewhere in college, especially for um, students that are one year in, say like freshmen that are just finishing now, um, and high school seniors that are, uh, were planning on entering college, but now there's uncertainty. And, you know, I have, uh, my oldest child, uh, just graduated from college and then I've got, um, some that are getting close. And, um, and so I had been thinking a lot about the topic and talking to friends about, Hey, if I was a high school senior, what would I do? And, and specifically the conversation started with a, a friend that had a, a freshman in college that was thinking about whether or not they go back to RIT in the fall. And uh, the question was like, well, let's assume it was online only like it is now since the sort of uh, quarantine started. Um, is it worth paying 
RIT um, prices for that experience. Like what portion of the tuition was going to the quote college experience and what was going to the educational component and uh, you know, like how are each being delivered remotely, et cetera. And um, yeah, the conversation sort of ended with us both saying, you know, I don't know. It, it, it feels like it may be a bit of a sucker's investment to sort of pay for year two in this situation, which is like best case going to be some reduced value version of RIT that he thought he was getting in the first place. And worst case, it's either sort of, you know, remote only the whole time, which the school isn't terribly, uh, or, you know, no schools terribly well set up to deliver, um, uh, at least if they're, if that wasn't their default mode in the first place. And, uh, you know, and, and it could be that, you know, you think you're going back and then, you know, the, the school has to shut down again, like they did this spring. So I said in this conversation, you know what, I, that seems like an easy call. Like, you know, I wouldn't spend, uh, like $60,000 for maybe getting the car that I thought I was buying. Right. I'd say like, no, I'm going to buy something that's more of a sure thing. And then that led us to, to, to talking about, well, what's the sure thing? Is it going remote only? Is it taking time off? Is it working for a bit, et cetera? And the, the sort of conclusion that I came to was if, if it was me, I would say, hey, how about instead of you know paying a lot of money for an uncertain sort of year, why don't I go with a sure bet and do some you know, like either self-study or work and self-study and then wait till things sort of settle down into whatever the new normal will be when we're done with all of this. And yeah, I tweeted sort of offhandedly something like, hey, if there are any high school seniors that, that would be interested in taking a gap year, uh, sort of working on a very interesting problem until things settle down, you know, for a year or two, that I'd hire you. And then, then, you know, some people responded to me thinking that was a good idea. And I decided to make it formal and you know, announce that we would do it and post a little teeny uh, uh, application for it and publicize it a bit. And um, yeah, so that's that's how I got here with the idea. And I, I still think it's a good idea. And it's something that we're going to we're going to really pursue as a as an interesting experiment to collaborate with some young people. I think that's fantastic. So how many candidates do you plan on hiring? Oh, I think realistically, we wouldn't hire more than three. Um, you know, I don't. I don't know what experience others have with working with very young people, but it's um, it's some work. Um, you know, it, it, it's quite an interesting experience in that, at least so far, my experience in it in the past, say, ten years has been that um, there are some young people that are extremely talented, and uh, and so that can be very exciting. Um, the part that takes the work is that they they kind of don't know on average, at least, they don't know things that you just don't even think about someone not knowing, right? Like they, like they just kind of the basic hygiene of knowing how to work with a team in a professional environment is can be um, a foreign idea. And so I think that means that too many um, would be a little bit hard for the for the sort of our small team to absorb, um, but too few. And, and I think that there's something lost too. So somewhere probably two to three is the right number. And, um, and that, that's a number where I think we can give enough attention to, to everyone to, to kind of help lift them through that transition period where they learn those sort of professional hygiene habits you need to have, but enough that it'll, you know, be an exciting experience for our team too, that, you know, we'll get to part, make, make kind of a, I don't know, lemonade out of uh, certainly a lemon situation. 
No, I think that's a very fair number. And it kind of takes me back to writing my first resume and putting, you know, skills that should be assumed, like time management and accountability, putting those as actual skills on your resume. Now we're at the point where that's just assumed that that's a skill that we have and we no longer need to list it out on a resume. But that, no, that's a very good point. It is definitely not assumed if you're, you know, anywhere between, I'd say, 17 and 23. Like there's a range where... Uh, just experience has taught me that you can that you can assume very little as it relates to kind of those basic building blocks, um, and uh, and and so I just try to be pretty mindful of that. It's a, an interesting thing to think about as part of this is like how do you make an application that a young person can um, respond to in a way that you'll understand them at all, and. Uh, right. Because like their resume would be weird. It's it, it, like you don't even start putting items on your resume until you're older than that. Anyhow, mm-hmm. um, they don't have a LinkedIn profile to point to and their social media, you know, may or may not be a great reflection of, of what their capabilities are. And so what, what I decided to do is just uh, put a single little text box that had a 288 character limit and say, you know, tweet, like write a tweet length application. Figuring that, um, um, you know, you, you, what's that famous quote? You know, I would have written you a shorter letter if I had the time. And, and you know, it's very difficult to communicate sort of um, succinctly in a, in a compelling way. And it's been surprisingly effective. I mean, so far there haven't been any applicants because I, I did the same thing for the, the um, main positions, not just the gap year positions. And uh, I've been amazed at how effective of a screening tool the tweet length cover letter is, because you basically, I mean, you can just, you can, you can read surprisingly, uh, a surprisingly large amount into someone's sort of communication style, you know, from that two sentence little blurb. Well, it just sounds like you're running multiple experiments at once. And it's so great that XBE is doing well. And I feel like this is almost your way of giving back. And if more companies you know, following your footsteps, I think we can make a real difference in these uh, young adults' lives. Yeah, you know, part of it for me is like, sometimes you wonder like, well, w- w- why is it worth it to try to build a company from scratch? You know, I mean, there are the obvious reasons, you know, like maybe there's there's financial upside or whatever. Um, but part of it, and maybe an even bigger part for me is that you just get to choose things. And um, there was like no better example of that than going from like in the course of one evening, going from a conversation with a friend about this topic to reflecting on my own children, to reflecting on my choices, to sort of launching a program with a name and putting a form on a website and seeing the first applicant. Like, it's just exciting to do that. That's like, it sort of makes the other four years of, you know, of sweat and whatever worth it. So before we wrap up the show, I did want to ask you about a concept that you had tweeted out, and that was the 10x customer. So what is that? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've been thinking about this all the time. You know, there's, there's, uh, well, there used to be lots of conversation about 10x developers. And it's funny, at first there was, there was, you know, not a lot of conversation. And then I I forget the article or whatever that it, that it uh, was pitched in. And then like for a millisecond, it became conventional wisdom that there were 10x customers and then it became tab or 10x developers. And then it became taboo to talk about. Um, and that now we, we all are under obligation to say that they don't exist. Um, which is of course untrue, but, uh, but I, I will not take my own bait on that topic. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, sometimes with friends, I'll, I'll, you know, make kind of snide comments like that about how, you know, we, we've, we've all decided that this thing that we all know exists doesn't exist. 
And, uh, and uh, then earlier this year, I was sort of reflecting on our own development process because we, we write, um, we have a very big sort of wide, deep product that's very complicated and sort of very interesting. And I was reflecting as we were hiring about like, how is it that our best product features and, you know, enhancements and areas, how, how do they come to be? Like, what's the recipe? And uh, as important as like a great developer is a great customer or set of customers that'll collaborate, not just on what's needed, but, but the most important thing they can do is agree to be the first user of a brand new complicated area and commit to riding it out until it's successful. And when, you know, I looked at these new feature areas and how they, they came to be and like, how, how has it been that we've built these, these complicated um, features that require a lot of iteration to get right. And it's that we have a few 10 X customers. And these are customers that are worth like many multiples, like orders of magnitude more than it looks like they're worth on, on uh, paper because they're sort of willing to engage, not just in throwing out what ideas um, they think sound good, but they're willing to use the product until it becomes what they believe it could become. And um, so earlier this year, or it was probably last year now, um, we're sort of reflecting on that and, and, and talking about the value of these 10X customers to our own product. And we made this choice that I think has been really, really valuable, which was we said, well, if it's the case that some customers are worth, you know, 10 or even 100x what uh, an average customer is worth in that sort of feedback loop, then why don't we try to develop them? Like instead of just kind of tripping into them and saying, oh, that's nice. Look at, look at, um, you know, look at this. Why don't we try to like study, hey, what is it about those customers that, that creates that feedback loop? And then scan sort of our prospects and existing customers for those situations where we think the person has the right kind of tenacious personality, that they're positive so they can kind of get through the difficult moments, that they have a lot of organizational sway so they can either, you know, uh, by, by uh, uh, edict or by leadership, uh, make sure that everyone else is on board. Like, can we seek out those individuals and organizations that we feel like can enter into that kind of um, iterative feedback loop with us? And then build it, like make ex make explicit deals with them to say like, hey, you you are able to do this thing and it's very valuable and we will give you attention, discounts, you know, uh, uh, other opportunities, acclaim, et cetera, if you, you know, engage with us that way. And um, I've been kind of amazed at how effective being purposeful about that has been. You know, like where before it seemed like we kind of stumbled into a few situations like that that just happened to be like, I don't know, be uh, be the right uh, environment in which features could grow. Um, but it turned out we could just say, oh, no, that's a, that's a thing we can cultivate, not just trip over. And now we've grown like a few more, maybe, I don't know, three more situations that are 10x customers where, you know, by collaborating with them, we've been able to like massively shorten the, the development cycle and, you know, find product market fit and new feature areas like way before we would have otherwise, because we probably wouldn't have otherwise, because you just need too much feedback in terms of real use to polish the thing that you could ever kind of invent in the lab. 
That's so interesting. It, do you feel that you're almost at the point where you have an informal customer advisory board? Oh, yeah. Oh, I think it's, it's I, actually, I'd say the opposite. I'd say we have something far beyond an advisory board. I mean, so for example, um, like I'm thinking of one of these 10X customers. So we're invited into their Slack to kind of bring this conversation full circle, not just their, not just like a, a room in their Slack, but like most of their company's Slack. And um, uh, our team interacts with their team um, on an hourly basis. Like it's not even daily, it's not even weekly. It's, it's literally almost nonstop. Um, and not just with like the, the designated representative on the advisory council, but with a cross section of, you know, I don't know, 14 different people or something, not 14 people an hour, but probably 14 people in a week. Um, and that kind of intimate interaction, that's not kind of theoretical and quarterly, but rather like daily, especially as it relates to brand new things that they're just using. That's, that's, um, almost at the point of use, right? It's like, like really close to the, the close to the metal as it relates to, to actually taking advantage of our platform out in the field. And um, that kind of um, direct access, but from between our software development team and their end users, instead of like our executives to their executives once every month or quarter, uh, I think is, uh, is how that sort of value generating um, uh, you know, mechanic works. Like it, it's connecting the, the sort of like the folks that actually do work to each other that, that feels so much more powerful to me than the sort of traditional customer advisory panel that, that we're all familiar with. I think that's really amazing. And it sounds like your customers have extreme buy-in, which is such a powerful thing. And I mean, the ability to be able to slack your customers with real-time feedback is incredible. Yeah, it's 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 interesting in that you know most companies that sell software kind of are just constantly sort of bothered by the fact that their software doesn't get used in the way that they imagined, or in the adoption's lousy. You know, adoption being the word of the day, I think, in that world. And our situation, I mean, we have a little bit of that, obviously, like like everyone does. But I think our situation is a little bit different in that our software is is kind of like the operating system for. Like I said before, it's like the infrastructure for infrastructure companies. And um, it, it, we don't really worry about adoption because because our product is like in the guts of what they do. Like they kind of can't do their work without it now. And so it, it flips the dynamic a little bit to instead being about um, since these teams are somewhat beholden to the platform, like they, they, they're like it, it's controlling some part of their world. Um, we have like just a tremendous responsibility to not screw it up, right? Like to be as good as they hoped we were. And because they are, are somewhat, the users are somewhat like locked into this world. Um, it actually creates a, quite a nice, friendly, collaborative back and forth because, um, th there's really nothing that they could threaten. Like they can't say that I won't use it. Right. Or they can't say I won't buy it. Well, they've already bought it and they have to use it. And so. Instead, they're like, well, you know, sugar is going to work a lot better here. And so they lean in They're, you know, by and large, extremely friendly. And our team knows that like they're, um, you know, that they're pretty locked into this world and takes our responsibility like really seriously. Like we want to make sure that we, we, we are as good as they need us to be. 
and yeah, it's it's quite nice. It's it's a quite interesting, um, vulnerable kind of uh, interaction that that I, uh, I I quite like. I think it's a concept that should be publicized more, and I'm excited to invite you back on the show, perhaps in a couple months, to ask you more about it and to hear how it's evolved. Sean, thank you so much for visiting the show today. You always provide such good topics and feedback. Uh, as a reminder, how can the listeners follow you? Well, I'm barely known on Twitter, so you can follow me there. And uh, yeah, thanks so much for having me on. I, I appreciate the opportunity. You've been listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast on the 5x5 network. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded to stay in the loop on Ruby on Rails and open source software. While you're at it, please leave us a review and thank you for listening.